Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikwe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is uh, Saturday, uh, May the 13th, 2023, and we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. And uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And uh, later on uh, in our program, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire reports. And uh, within the Pan-African Newswire, uh, we, of course, uh, will have uh, some issues, uh, pressing and burning issues of the day. Uh, We'll discuss the Jeddah Declaration, uh, which was signed after talks between two warring military structures in the Republic of Sudan, and fighting that has been taking place in the country for the last four weeks. The Malawian uh, High Court has ruled that students can wear dreadlocks uh, in their schools, so we'll have details on that as well. The Horn of Africa state of Somalia has been hit by catastrophic floods in recent days. Uh, We'll report on that. And in Mauritania, in North West Africa, the people are participating in national elections in that country. In the second hour, we go into details over the impact of the clashes in the Republic of Sudan, where the armed forces and the rapid support forces have been fighting for four weeks. In the final segment, we examine the history related to the upcoming 60th anniversary of the formation of the Organization of African Unity, the predecessor to the African Union. Uh, The AU was uh, formed in 2002, and the African Union was formed on May 25th. The Organization of African Unity was formed on May 25th of 1963 in Addis Ababa, uh, Ethiopia. And uh, we will listen uh, to uh, rare archival audio files of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah speaking in the United States over the Meet the Press uh, program uh, in late uh, 1958. Finally, we hear Mwalimu Julius Nereri, uh the then future president of the Republic of Tanzania, United Republic of Tanzania, in a panel discussion with the likes of Eleanor Roosevelt and Barbara Ward. This took place in 1959. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned, and uh, we're going to take our musical interlude in the West African state of Ghana uh, with the African Brothers Band International. Uh, Let's listen in. I'm 
Welcome back. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, May the 13th, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And that was the music of the African Brothers Band International uh, from the West African state of Ghana. And right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program, and uh, these are some of the headlines in uh, today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. And of course, uh, our lead story uh, deals uh, with the current security uh, crisis uh, in uh, the Republic of Sudan. And uh, there was a declaration that was signed uh, just two days ago in uh, the Red Sea port city of Jeddah uh, in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It was, of course, there was uh, discussions and negotiations being mediated by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the United States uh, in regard to the fighting that is taking place uh, in uh, the Republic of Sudan, where uh, the Sudanese armed forces have been waging a formidable struggle against the rapid support forces. And, of course, that has resulted in over 600 reported deaths. Thousands and tens of thousands of people have been dislocated. And, of course, it has become a major source of concern in Africa as well as throughout the international community. On Thursday night, a declaration of commitment uh, was signed in Jeddah uh, by Sudan's uh, warring factions. Now, this was following a nearly week-long series of talks that were mediated uh, by Saudi Arabia and the United States. This declaration was not a ceasefire, as if to underline that fact, uh, the Sudanese army and the rapid support forces paramilitary returned uh, to their war uh, yesterday with airstrikes and artillery rounds pummeling uh, the capital of Khartoum. Uh, None of these six humanitarian Uh, Ceasefires announced by the United States and Saudi Arabia during the course of the conflict uh, have held so far. Neither Sudanese side has released a statement acknowledging the deal, which was signed on behalf of the army by Rear Admiral Makjoub Bushra Ahmed Rama and for the paramilitary uh, by Brigadier General Omer Hamdan Ahmed Hamad who is the brother of RSF chief uh, Mohammed Hamdan Dargalo, who is better known as Hameti. The two men uh, did not shake hands or even look at each other after signing the document, but instead posed for photos with Saudi officials while U.S. negotiators hovered in the background. Friday morning, the RSF tweeted a video saying that its forces were, quote, in the field and ready for any confrontation, end quote. At the same time, uh, the United Nations Refugee Agency said that some 200,000 people have fled Sudan to neighboring countries since fighting began on the morning of April 15th, some four weeks ago. The Middle East Eye uh, website has seen the English text of the Jeddah Agreement and can confirm that it contains many grandly framed statements about the, quote, well-being of the Sudanese people, our top being our top priority, unquote, and, quote, the responsibility to respect international humanitarian law and international human rights law, unquote. Quote, the declaration basically confirms that both sides will continue to fight, 
They just promised now that they will fight in line with the laws of war, unquote. That's according to Carl Schembri, a spokesman uh, for the Norwegian Refugee Council. And this was told uh, to the Middle East Eye. Quote, so we are settling in for a long protracted conflict, unquote. The Jeddah text mentions Khartoum, but not Darfur, where fierce fighting has been taking place for weeks and hundreds of people are believed to have been killed. Uh, these are two sides that are happily and readily choking a city to meet their ambitious ends. And another news uh, taking place, uh, of course, uh, on uh, the African continent. In the southern African state of Malawi, a high court in that country has directed the Ministry of Education to allow students with dreadlocks to be enrolled in public schools in the country. The court, uh, just this last past Monday, further ordered the ministry to issue a curricula, uh, a circular, uh, by June 30th, announcing the removal of restrictions barring Rastafarian learners of schools. The court ruled on a petition filed on behalf of two Rastafarian who were denied admission to public schools in 2010 as well as in 2016 uh, for growing locks. The learners through human rights organizations obtained an injunction and thereafter filed a suit seeking to have Rastafari children allowed access to schools without prejudice, local media has reported. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In uh, the Horn of Africa state of Somalia, thousands of people have been forced to flee their homes in the central region of the country after the River Shabil uh, burst its banks in Belawine. Heavy rains uh, has led to flooding in the area causing damage to towns and villages, and the U.N.'s Humanitarian Response Agency, the OCHA, warned of an increase in disease such as cholera as local infrastructures are impacted. Local resident Abdi Hafid Muhammad Yusuf shared his experience. He said, quote, we fled the flash floods that submerged the city like so many others, unquote, he said. People ran out of the city to safety, for four days, the floods poured massively into the city, unquote. There was also a shopkeeper, Nur Hassan, uh, added that the heavy rains had impacted his trade. Our business had been badly affected by the massive flooding in Belladwine and the hope movement of people. This has resulted in a reduction in the presence of our customers. The flooding comes as international figures show a record number of internally displaced people worldwide with natural disasters, accounting for 32.6 million of such movements last year. Deputy Governor of Hiran Region, Hassan Ibrahim Abdullah, said almost the entire population of some regions have had to move out. Most of the inhabitants of the four districts of the town of Ledwine are just because of the flash floods, he explained. 90% of the local towns have fled. 10% are still in the town because they have been stranded or they live in the highlands. The flooding comes in sharp contrast to months of drought, uh, which has killed tens of thousands of people and wiped out crops and livestock. It is feared the rains could force many families into destitution. And finally, in the north African state of Mauritania, 
of voters uh, in Mauritania went to the polls uh, earlier today in the first local election since the President Mohamed Ul Busiani came to power uh, four years ago in 2019. It is being seen as a test of the leader's popularity ahead of presidential elections next year, in which he has not yet confirmed his decision to stand. However, Aga Zulani, uh, who has overseen the West African country's relative stability in the violence-wracked Sahel, is widely expected to seek re-election. Voter Mahfoud said, quote, We would like these elections to bring out patriotic men who will work to boost the economy and reduce unemployment, unquote. Gazuani's El Isaf party is favored to win among the 25 parties vying for the backing of around 1.8 million voters who are set to choose 176 members of parliament, as well as 15 regional councils and 238 municipal councils. And with that, that we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding uh, this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The agency was founded in January of 1998. Since that time period, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches and hundreds of newspapers magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access uh, to today's Pan-African Journal, this special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. And that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. Oh, oh, oh. You got something 
Welcome back. And that was uh, the music of Johnny Nash uh, with the track entitled You Got Soul. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, May 13th, 2023. And we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, Michigan. And we've been following uh, the situation in the Republic of Sudan. It has created a huge humanitarian crisis, uh, not only for Sudan, but for neighboring states as well. Here's a um, press conference uh, that was uh, done earlier this week uh, at the United Nations to discuss the humanitarian crisis uh, in uh, the Republic of Sudan. Let's listen. This is uh, an account of the humanitarian situation in the Sudan. And uh, as a result, everybody knows of the rebellion launched by the RSM on the Sudanese armed forces on 15 April um, in an attempt to capture power by force. The already dire humanitarian situation has deteriorated and is getting worse. However, the government is ex- exerting tremendous efforts to contain the impact of the situation in various aspects and was able to control and reduce the intensity of the devastation. To date, no state of emergency has been declared nor communicating or communication network is disrupted. Despite this already limited resources and capacity, the government of Sudan is working hard to deal with the humanitarian situation. Many citizens were enforced to leave their homes by the rebels and due to the severe damage to many public facilities, internal movements or crossing borders to the destinations. There is urgent need for humanitarian services at the border crossings, which witness a crowding of citizens wishing to cross the border with children, elderly, and sick. The humanitarian condition is, is bad, and there is an urgent need for water, food, more, uh, mobile clinics, um, temporary housing, and financial assistance until the completion of crossing procedures. In response to the appeals and calls, the staff agreed uh, to many successive humanitarian truces to allow evacuation operations, access to medical services, and allowing citizens to get their needs and move out of Khartoum. Air and sea ports are available for evacuation and receiving humanitarian aid and assistance. The government of Sudan is committed to ensure safety, security of the foreign diplomats and nationals in Khartoum, as well as the safety of the humanitarian personnel and aid shipments. The evacuation processes have been and is still going on successfully with great appreciation for the role played by the Sudanese competent authorities. A high-level 
Committee for Humanitarian Aid has been formed to include various national and relevant bodies to deal urgently with the humanitarian assistance and oversee the aid and relief operations in close collaboration with the national civil society. The committee is working in coordination with the UN agencies and international organizations. The latest visit of the UNSG bears testimony to that coordination and cooperation, as well as the smooth clearance for humanitarian shipments in Port Sudan. The permanent mission of the Sudan in New York is, is in close contact and working constantly to coordinate with the Office of the USG for Humanitarian Affairs at various levels, and several meetings in this regard were conducted uh, where the following has been agreed. High-level engagement with the humanitarian situation in Sudan, taking note of the dimensions of the current special situation and mobilizing efforts for an immediate response to it. Engaging with Martin Griffiths and the Secretary General for Relief Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator with the Secretary General as well, the African Union and the rest of the stakeholders, as well as communication with voluntary non-governmental organizations and the UN team on a daily basis. Immediate contact with donors and request to communicate with them, especially the Gulf countries and the United States of America and the other 10 international donors very well known to you. Strengthening the security mechanism for local staff with the aim of developing an operational plan to identify humanitarian needs and redefine priorities. Allocating an initial amount of $18 million from the Humanitarian Emergency Fund to deal with the humanitarian needs subject to finalizing the prioritization program. Sudan is placed in the second uh, place now in terms of humanitarian classification. Uh, the General Assembly uh, adopted resolution number 4618-1991 to strengthen the coordination of emergency humanitarian assistance of the United Nations in cases of disasters, emergencies, loss of human uh, life, influx of refugees, mass displacement of citizens, and material destruction. The resolution provides for the following UN guidelines. The need to provide humanitarian aid in emergency situations, adopting the principles of humanity, neutrality, and impartiality, respect for the sovereignty, territorial integrity, and national unity of states, in accordance with the Charter of the UN, provided that humanitarian assistance is provided based on the approval of the affected country according to an appeal or appeal issued by it. International cooperation to address emergencies beyond the response capacity of many affected countries to respond in accordance with international law and national laws, provided that intergovernmental organizations and non-governmental organizations are operating with integrity and out of purely humanitarian motives continue to make a significant contribution to complementing national efforts. The most urgent humanitarian needs at this stage are as follows. Medical services, within, which include life-saving, life-sustaining medicines, of which antibiotics, drips, surgical kits, first aid supplies, and vaccines are badly needed and have to be mobilized to functional hospitals due to the fact that more than 50% of the hospitals in Khartoum are dysfunctional. 
mobile hospitals, clinics, and ambulances could help tackle the situation. Materials of hygiene, latrines, sanitizers, water pumps, and water tanks are also critical to the safety of the people. In anticipation of an increase in diseases outbreaks like malaria or cholera and funeral body kits, concerted efforts have to be made to ensure prevention and preparedness measures are well taken into account. Sudan is an urgent need for non-medical items such as emergency shelter and power generators, water pumps, water tanks, as thousands of citizens left their homes and became displaced or moved to other safe areas or towns. Assistance is also needed to help fix the badly damaged or broken water, electricity and telephone networks, hospitals, educational institutions and public entities were targeted resulting in total or partial damage and they need to be repaired or built and provided with surgical kits and medical supplies for all kinds of surgeries. Pregnant women expected to give birth in the coming weeks and months, newborns and children need special and delicate medical care. In accordance or in conclusion, the Sudanese authorities are working around the clock on the updates of figures of fatalities, wounded, the IDPs are refugees, and the exact number will be communicated in the EU course. We would like to reiterate that the humanitarian assistance operations should be conducted on the basis of the internationally recognized guiding principles of humanity, neutrality, impartiality, and independence, and that the sovereignty, territorial integrity, and national unity must be fully respected. All aid workers and organizations should refrain from politicization of the humanitarian aid or link it to political considerations or conditionalities. Moreover, the national ownership is receiving, in receiving, monitoring, delivering, and patrolling humanitarian aid must be fully adhered to and respected. The commitment to the principles of the humanitarian assistance have already been observed by the Sudanese armed forces since the start of the rebellion. Due to the absence of command and control of the insurgent militia, besides the state of despair resulted in a number of breaches, to name but a few, lootings, burnings, malls, and stores, in indiscriminate shooting, arbitrary checkpoints, and their presence in the civilian objects, using them as military bases, is becoming a familiar phenomenon. We are thankful for our brotherly and sisterly countries that have already started sending humanitarian aid and assistance which have significantly alleviated the suffering of our people. We are especially thankful to the United Nations Secretary General for his keenness and engagement with the situation in Sudan, in particularly his good offices, and thanks to OCHA and His Excellency the USG Mr. Martin Griffiths for his audacity and commitment as he shuttles between New York and Port Sudan. Thank you for listening. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Now, with this briefing by Ambassador uh, Haris Idris, the permanent representative of Sudan, we open the floor for you for any questions. Please. Yes, sir. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Uh, Frank Uciardo from TRT World. Thank you for having this press conference. Um, first of all, I'd like to know 
we keep hearing from the experts that uh, you have prepared generals that both think they can win, and we keep having accusations of ceasefires from each side that being violated. Uh, are you really in control of your country, number one? And number two, do you really think you're going to be able to achieve a ceasefire anytime soon before more hundreds of thousands of people keep fleeing the country? Thank you. Yes. Our commitment is not to the uh, partial successive humanitarian truces. This is, in fact, a particular model being built up in this particular occasion in order to soften the engagement with a lengthy uh, humanitarian or uh, uh, ceasefire. And this is, will be discussed in the particular uh, uh, part when people come to discussing the political engagement because now we are highly concerned with the priorities of the humanitarian engagement. So, of course, the Sudanese armed forces are not launching an, offense, an offensive. They are actually uh, making a defensive. Uh, this is why they will not uh, open fire only if they have been attacked. And this is why from time to time there will be uh, a kind of what apparently uh, may be as uh, a breach of the ceasefire. But actually this is not meant. And this is actually not uh, the case which is uh, currently being on. There is uh, actually uh, a kind of trying to uh, operationalize the center of the town. And, and as much as those uh, rebellious regiments who took refuge into inhabitant, heavily inhabitant areas and they confiscated houses, they are there. And this is why the army would not attack them, definitely in case, in order to lessen the, the loss of civilians. Uh, this is, uh, this is our, our principal commitment, actually, and we are abiding by it, and it has been observed in the Jeddah Declaration, which was launched yesterday. If you don't have it, I can give, provide you with a copy. So, who's, who's looting the warehouses? That who's looting the warehouses? This is our, as I, as I said in my statement, there are regiments of the RSM, uh, RSF, who lost control and command with their uh, leadership, and they are actually converted into a kind of criminal bands, looting, suiting, and booting uh, luxuriously. And this is what, when at gunpoint, they will enter into houses and order their citizens to, to vacate the houses, and they uh, stay in. They have a massive city in many houses. And also they have converted what we, uh, you know, public facilities as well. And this is at the heart of the town. This is which has protracted uh, and apparently that protracted the process of trying to ease them out. So they will be there until their ammunition runs out and they will be pushed out at least. Uh, thank you, Murad Hashim from Al-Jazeera Arabic. Uh, Ambassador, to what, to what extent do you think the Jeddah Declaration will be translated and achieved on the ground. Second, uh, do you think that there is a need for the Security Council to support this uh, declaration uh, as the SCG actually did uh, by a statement a few, few hours ago? Regarding the commitments of the Jeddah Declaration, they are mainly concerned with the commitment to international humanitarian law in whatever, in any armed conflict this international humanitarian law comes in as uh, a principle and norms to be observed. 
by uh, whenever uh, uh, an outbreak of uh, a conflict has been broken out. Number two, uh, regarding the, uh, the, the holding of the Jeddah, we think it is apoliticized. There is no political engagement in it. And as I said, the priority is now is to contain the humanitarian position, which is dire. And this is why, if you see all along, there are commitments from our side, from the government side. There will be commitments, for example, to the respect of humanitarian law. There will be commitment to refrain from attack uh, that may be expected to cause incidental civilian harm. There will be feasible, uh, feasible precautions to avoid and minimize civilian harm. There will be uh, commitment to vacate and refrain from occupying as well as to respect and protect public and private facilities, and commitment to respect to protect uh, also medical transports and the doctors and their equipment, and to uphold uh, the rights of civilians of laissez-faire, so, so on and so forth. These are general principles, uh, and it is uh, heavily inculcated in the Sudanese national culture. So if the national culture is not holding at the time of conflict, then this is now the commitment. So let us hope and be optimistic that it will be, hold, uh, it will be holding. And from the government side, they will commit to it. As I told you, uh, Sudan government is not enough launching an offensive. They are actually in a defensive position. Uh, uh, regarding the Security Council, uh, we, to be honest, we do not prefer uh, an involvement of the Security Council in terms of having products because there is already the Security Council itself have in Chapter 8 of the UN Charter have delegated its uh, uh, maintain of uh, uh, security and, uh, and peace, peace and security to the regional organizations. In this, I mean the AU. Sudan is committed to the AU blueprint for uh, silencing the guns and to finding African solutions to African problems. So the Security Council, because it is, uh, with due respect, it is heavily divided now. So we would like at least uh, the Security Council is at will. Uh, the Security Council is a master of itself. But actually, we would like if they, invade, if they engage with the Sudanese situation, they should engage softly. Why? Because we think we have engaged uh, before in many cases with the Security Council, and Sudan is actually on the agenda of the Security Council. There is no more need to put it also in a new chapter of agenda. So this will exacerbate the case, and it will cut the realm and the space available for the Secretary General to, to do or to launch his, uh, uh, what do you call it, good offices. And it will also uh, uh, may paralyze the AU to involve positively with the Sudanese situation. So this is why, with due respect to the Security Council uh, uh, realm, we would not, uh, uh, we are not zealous that the Security Council should step in with coercive measures or with strong language, and still this is working and subject to the uh, situation. But actually, with the due respect to the Security Council, uh, let's 
the AU, uh, uh, I mean, good, good offices and initiative works first. Yeah. I have another question. Yes. I, I, uh, I may ask in Arabic. Yes, yes. Thank you, Mr. Safir. With regard to the agreement of the agreement, the agreement is that the agreement between the government and the military is the same. It is the agreement between هل فلما تمقر واعتبر هذا خطا استراتيجي هل يمكن التفسير ايجاد يعني التوضيح او تقديم تفسير لهذه الصيغه الجواب العربي والعايزه بالانجليزي بالعربي طيب ام سوري تو سبيك ان عربي اند طيب لانه اساسا الاتفاق ما تم رعايته من قبل دولة اقليميه ذات نفوذ واسع هي السعوديه المملكه العربيه السعوديه ونحن نشكرها في هذا المجال لأنها تبرعت بمية مليون دولار للإغاثة الإنسانية والولايات المتحدة بحكم دورها بحكم دورها القيادي العالمي اثنين دير رعاة رعاة مزعة وتدابير حميدة وبالتالي يمكن حصل softening للانجويتش لأنك أنت ما ممكن تكون وسيط نزيه وبالتالي أنت تجي يعني زي ما بقولوا نحن علمونا في القانون هي come to equity must come with clear conscience وبالتالي نحن ما منزعجين لقصه اللانجويج بقدر ما يهمنا المحتوى وصلته بالواقع واثروا على انه يمكن ان يؤدي او يشكل بدايه لتشكيل نورمز بناء نورمز وتقاليد ومثل ومثلا رولز على انها اقليميا تجد الاحترام وتضيف للتراث العالمي في معالجه النزاعات فبالتالي انا اذا كانت اتمنى انه تكون الاجابه دي هي في هذا المجال وافيه لانه الادانات حصلت من قبل عده اطراف واطراف كثيره جدا جدا تاذت وتضررت من عمليه الاحتلالات العشوائيه للشاتلز للهاوزز للفاسيلتيز كارز لوتينج سوتينج بوتينج ده كله حصل وبالتالي الناس عايزه تنتقل لمرحله جديده فبالتالي اعتقد انه كان القصد الدرافترز A drafters may not reflect the intentions of the two uh, two uh, sponsors. لأنه لجنة السيارة هي بتعمل الأشياء دي مرات، وبالتالي نتوقع إنه أيوة الالتزام بالإعلان يؤثر على أي وضع قانوني أو أمني للأطراف الموقعة أو سياسي للأطراف الموقعة موجود في النص. شكرا. تفضل. يا كم هم؟ كم ونسى؟ Yeah, I had another question. Uh, you had earlier talked about Security Council involvement. Now, back in March, if I recall, you asked, uh, you called for a lifting of the arms embargo on Sudan. How would that help the situation now? Uh, lifting the arms embargo. I, I was talking about this, you mean, or the Security no, Council? No, did, did you not back in March call oh, for, oh, a, a, oh, yes. for a lifting of the arms embargo? Oh, my yes. question to you is, how would that help in the middle of a conflict? Uh, the issue, uh, this is actually was part of a campaign to undo the Security Council Resolution 1591, which was uh, imposed in 2005 in the aftermath of the heavy, uh, what we call uh, heavy intensity conflict, um, which involves the international community, the media, and the Security Council. So this uh, particular conflict was 
classified under Chapter 7. So accordingly, uh, we saw that 18 years afterwards, uh, this should not be held. It would be uh, unfair. Number two, on the ground, there were lots of, uh, uh, there is a lot of work has been done in terms of peace building, local peace building, that even the, uh, what do you call it, the political mission cannot match it. So this is what we saw, uh, tribal reconciliation, not, uh, not necessarily the intercommunal uh, clashes that happens here and there, but we saw the, the 1591 has affected and compromised the national security of the Sudan in trying to keep law and order in Darfur. They are not allowing the army to send any heavy uh, armaments or tanks or anything since 2005. Because at that time, 2005, the army, uh, some units of the army were part and parcel of the conflict. But this has affected the whole national uh, image. And it becomes a heel uh, of a shield regarding the Sudan. This is why, as a lawyer, I saw it's unfair. It does not contain, uh, say, uh, uh, an ending uh, term, what do you call it, uh, uh, an ending clause. It is open-ended. And it, it, it is a kind of derogation, complete derogation from the traditions of drafting resolutions in the Security Council. And this is why lots of uh, uh, UN members have uh, supported us, 22 countries in the Arab world, 57 countries in Africa, and uh, 75 countries in OIC. They all supported our campaign. And it resulted at the end that the penholder has positively uh, responded and we managed to now to enter into the language of the resolution uh, a definitive term for 18 months and at this 18 months the Security Council comes and assess the position and the situation and see to, mo to modify, to alternate or to uh, uh, terminate the 1591. This is what I meant at that time. Well, if I, if I read, read, read you right in what you're saying here, in other words, if there wasn't an arms embargo, would there be a conflict now, or would this feed into more violence on both no, no, sides? The, the arms embargo, uh, uh, as I said, it has affected the degree of armament of the Sudan because you can't keep law and order with uh, bunches of flowers in a restive region like Darfur, where rogue armbands coming from uh, the neighborhood and others who are attracted by the lucrative uh, gold mining, and they are uh, causing havoc in the region, while the Sudanese armed forces cannot, be, do, cannot do anything. So this is what I said. It's a total and acceptable compromise of the national uh, security of the country. Can you, can you shout a bit? being done to ensure future food assistance and humanitarian aid won't be looted? Have there been any different approaches to how that's been distributed? Okay, if you are asking about the future model or formula of delivery and distribution of food, we have many. Sudan has had an engagement in 1989 with what we call OLS, Operation, Li Operation Lifeline uh, Sudan, where at uh, that time 
uh, it involves the government of Sudan, the SPLM, SPLA, and the United Nations. So we have lots of, uh, say, uh, norms and culture in order to, to, as a springboard for us to, to use this in trying to be inventive rather than just to follow for the traditional uh, formula that does not, do, not, do not work. And secondly, uh, we think the future of humanitarian delivery it is being reflected in, in the uh, Jeddah Declaration that they will not be hampered. They will be uninterrupted. Uh, if you mean uh, safe uh, havens or safe humanitarian corridors, they will be granted, but subject to the uh, ownership of the Sudanese armed forces or Sudanese government, and they will be, uh, uh, what do you call it, they will be uh, uh, under the supervision of, of the Sudanese armed forces, together with other stakeholders who are accepted by the Sudan government. Uh, there are also other stakeholders. This is what we call stakeholding humanitarianism. Okay, humanitarianism is unbound, but it should be bounded at least to involve uh, women and girls and local and national uh, civil society who becomes very vigilant and active, uh, I mean, actors during this time of uh, rest period. Regarding the, the stopping the looting, regarding stopping the looting, is this what you meant as well? So there are uh, a kind of uh, condensed ad hoc security measures that have been taken since before the breakout of this uh, rebellion, and uh, security procedures have been reinforced to protect, uh, uh, I mean, uh, foreign diplomats, their headquarters, although there are some uh, uh, headquarters have been looted uh, at one time or another, but actually there is a specific uh, f internal force and security regiment that have been dedicated to take, uh, you know, uh, to, to protect the, these, these, these headquarters from onslaught. So we are building on this, and this has been also reflected in the, in the Jeddah Declaration. There is also, uh, I said it in, the, in my statement, that there has been a, higher, a high level intergovernmental humanitarian commission has been, has been formed to get in touch and to touch base with uh, OCHA and UN in, in Port Sudan. And we have staff located in Port Sudan on the ground. And also within the foreign uh, minister of foreign affairs, there is also a crisis uh, Management, I mean, a committee to manage the um, managing crisis as well. They are in touch and coordinating with these local actors. And then just one more forward-looking question. Uh, earlier in May, UN Secretary Toby Harwood told reporters that a key role of the UN after the conflict is resolved would be to reinforce the prestige of the state and respect for law, uh, rule of law institutions in Sudan. Is that a statement you'd agree with, and what do you think the UN's role listen, would look like? Listen, with due respect to the UN efforts, which we welcome, but I said in the Security Council there was a deficiency. It is uh, a deficiency in two, in two main uh, uh, levels, or that is, in particular, international community did not honor its commitment to finance the DDR uh, operation 
and uh, in furtherance of an ideal, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, implementation of the Juba Peace Agreement. There were 700 million pledged, but they were dishonored. Not a single hairpenny has been paid. And we say, and I said in the Security Council, had this been honored, we could have avoided this uh, conflict, which is now. Second thing, there is a deficiency in the peace-building uh, uh, conceptualization in Sudan. I don't want to blame uh, this or that, but there was a main deficiency in this area because we thought that it was not meant to be as a priority in as much as the priority according to the political engagement. So this is why if we uh, gave the priority uh, for peace-building and involving the locals, women and girls, youths, with a blueprint and an agenda to work on, it could have facilitated and uh, uh, uphold what you have uh, stated right now. Time finished or we have time finished, okay? If no more questions, uh, we thank you for uh, sharing with us this afternoon the press conference by His Excellency Ambassador Harris Idris, the permanent representative of Sudan about the developments in our country. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Uh, that was a uh, press conference uh, held at the United Nations uh, featuring the uh, Sudanese ambassador to the UN. Uh, was held uh, just uh, earlier this week. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Uh, today is Saturday. May 13th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. There was also a, a panel discussion uh, that uh, took place as well on uh, the impact of civilians uh, in the situation, the security situation in the Republic of Sudan, where for the last four weeks, the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid support forces have uh, engaged in battles uh, heavily within the uh, capital of Khartoum, and also uh, violence has erupted uh, in the western uh, Darfur uh, region of the country as well. Uh, let's listen to this discussion on uh, the situation in Sudan. Representatives of Sudan's rival factions are meeting for ceasefire negotiations in the Saudi city of Jeddah. International mediators are hoping to secure a lasting peace, even as fighting continues in Sudan's capital, Khartoum. The conflict between the Sudanese army and the rival rapid support forces paramilitary is now entering its fourth week. Chaos in Khartoum. Among the thousands fleeing, international diplomats. Many had been involved just weeks before in efforts to transition from military to civilian rule. Now some are questioning whether they may have done more harm than good. In 2019, widespread protests were followed by a military coup that toppled the country's long-standing dictator. Eventually, there was a transitional power-sharing agreement between the military and civilians until elections could be held. Sudan had a new civilian prime minister and a transitional military council. This is where the trouble began. The council was chaired by General Abdel Fattah al-Bahan. His deputy was Mohammed Hamdan Daglo, or Hamedi, the leader of the paramilitary rapid support forces. 
These men now lead the two sides in the conflict. Hopes for democracy were set back in 2021 when Hamedi and Burhan deposed the civilian government, but their differences over power sharing were hardening. Meanwhile, from the US... If the military puts this train back on its tracks and does what's necessary, I think the support that um, has been very strong from the international community can resume. The UN, the US and Britain, among other powers, resisted calls to sanction the military leadership, giving Hamedi and Albert Hahn legitimacy while hoping for better results than their history of violence suggested. Any transition is delicate and in Sudan we are at a particularly delicate stage of this transition. So I really call on all sides who are involved in the political process to go the extra mile to work towards prompt restoration of civilian rule in the country. Naivete or pragmatism, or both. Amid protests, the US and Britain worked to bridge the generals' differences, while the generals were deploying their forces in the capital. And just weeks later, the war was on. And for more on the situation in Sudan, we're now joined by Cameron Hudson. He's an analyst and consultant on African peace, security and governance issues. He's also a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He joins us from Washington. Now, how much of a role do you think the West has had in fueling the conflict in Sudan? Well, I don't think that I would say that the, the, the West uh, has been fueling the conflict. I think if we look back uh, at the negotiations, the mediation that's been taking place there for the last six months, I think we can. it's fair to say that there have been some errors of omission and errors of commission. Uh, but, of course, all of it, I think, uh, intentioned around the idea of bringing civilians back into uh, the, 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 the rule of the country. I think the question is, you know, did we... Uh, put too much faith in what we were hearing from the military leaders that they were willing to submit uh, to civilian rule? Uh, did we do enough to isolate those spoilers who were against uh, seeing the transformation of the country and the restoration of civilian rule? So I think there are things that we certainly got wrong, uh, analysis we got wrong, but I don't think that uh, the Western or international effort uh, to find a way forward was, was uh, the cause of the fighting that's broken out. Do you see any one thing that the West could have done differently? Well, I think that throughout this process, going back to 2019 and going back to uh, the very start of the revolution, uh, Washington and its allies in the West have prioritized the voices of those people with guns uh, over people uh, in the civilian, uh, you know, civil society, political leadership of the country. And we really need to have been investing much more uh, in bringing those voices into a more formal conversation, demonstrating that they are, in fact, the true leaders of the country, uh, demonstrating our uh, our commitment to the to the ideals of the revolution. I think that many in the West and in the international coalition, which now has expanded beyond the West because it obviously includes Saudi Arabia, UAE, Egypt, you hear them talking about stability. And I think we have gotten away from the idea of democracy. Stability and democracy are not the same thing. What the Sudanese people are, are demanding is democracy. What they are trying to be served is stability. But of course, Sudan has never known stability under military rule. But isn't stability a prerequisite of uh, democracy?
Well, that is, of course, why Sudan has never had democracy, is because we have always made this notion of near-term stability a prerequisite for democracy. And what you have just expressed is the expression of diplomats who have been mediating this conflict now for four years, never able to deliver real civilian rule, real democracy. If we allow ourselves to be satisfied with this illusory idea of stability, then we will never achieve and the Sudanese people will never achieve that which they are dying for today. Mm. Now, what kind of leverage then does the international community uh, to stop the bloodshed and to achieve at least stability as a first step? Well, I think Washington comes to these talks uh, this week with new leverage in the form of a sanctions regime that was announced last week by the Biden administration. We understand uh, that they are using those, the threat of those sanctions uh, to try to bring people to the table and to try to get them uh, to at least concede on these, on these small points around humanitarian access and, and ceasefire. Again, I think we have to question uh, the durability of any agreement uh, that comes under duress and that comes under threat. I think we have, uh, you know, these, these sanctions should have been levied long ago, and we should be negotiating now uh, the terms under which we would remove sanctions, not negotiating the, which, the, the terms under which we would impose sanctions. So I think Washington and its allies have really gotten this uh, backwards. We've lost the script in Sudan, uh, and if we continue only talking to military leaders, we're going to continue to have this kind of false sense of security that won't, that won't last very long. Cameron Hudson, the analyst and consultant on African peace, security and governance issues. Thank you very much for your expertise. Thank you. Now, tens of thousands of people have fled the fighting in Sudan to neighboring countries. But not everyone is able to flee. DW spoke to a mother who stuck with her children in Khartoum. Uh, some people uh, left because they were in immediate danger. Their homes had been attacked or they were forcibly evacuated by security forces uh, in areas of heavy shelling. The residents were told to leave. Uh, in other areas, uh, people found that they were going to be in the middle of ongoing armed conflict and uh, to avoid becoming quote-unquote collateral damage, uh, they had to flee their homes. Uh, some people were attacked in their homes, some were robbed at gunpoint, and uh, so they chose to leave to safer places. We can't guarantee the safety of our family on the roads right now. Uh, I have three teenage sons. Uh, I have been through RSF checkpoints. Uh, they are manned by very young, very young soldiers. And uh, I don't want to put my children in a, a, a confrontation with them. The fact of the matter is that when you do decide to flee, you can't guarantee your safety. Uh, right now, uh, I'm also accompanied by my elderly mother. And so uh, the evacuation routes that people have taken uh, heading to Port Sudan or Dungul or Hassa in the north, uh, headed towards the Egyptian border. Uh, for us, uh, that, that arduous trip is not an option uh, for, uh, for health purposes and for safety purposes. We, we need the international community to take ownership of their role in what was framed as mediation over the past few years, but didn't listen to the voices of the people. It was obvious, it was obvious that 
the interests of the Sudanese people uh, were not being centered at the narrative. It was all about politics. It was all about power. Uh, the demands of the revolution, freedom, peace, justice, uh, seem to fall on the by roads if we can guarantee that we can stay safely in our homes and uh, a real ceasefire is reached, and then we will stay. This is our country, this is our home. We don't want to leave our homes. We don't want to go anywhere. We just want to be safe. We just ask for a functioning country, the country that we love, that we fought for. This is where we want to be right now. This is where we want to stay, this is our home. And we are joined now by Peter Schumann, who's an expert on UN missions in Sudan. Welcome to DW, Mr. Schumann. We just heard there a Sudanese mother essentially accusing the international community of not listening, of not putting the interests of the Sudanese first. The Sudanese people have made very clear they don't want military rule. UN Special Representative Volker Pertis rejects these accusations, says the West is not at fault for the current crisis in Sudan. Do you agree with him? Well, you know, uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk to you about this uh, very, very heartbreaking issue, the situation in Sudan. Uh, you know, it is difficult to judge now at this stage uh, who is at fault. I think we have a structural problem. Whatever a United Nations peacekeeping operation can do is extremely limited. And when I have one criticism about the mission UNITEMS, then this, this is that the international leading politicians in the Security Council never really supported politically the mission as they should have done. They, remember in, in Sudan on the UNMIS, the first mission, uh, when we were at the brink of the mission collapsing, there were high-level politicians visiting Khartoum, uh, Condoleezza Rice, others, they came and they really put the parties under pressure. This time we haven't seen this. Of course, the mission leadership must also signal very clearly to New York, to the Council, that there are limitations what the mission can do on the ground and where external high-level political support is required. This was not done. But Can in I addition, I think the criticism we, we just heard from the mother in Khartoum is absolutely correct. We continue to neglect the voice from the civil society organizations, from the activists, from the community assistance committees, from others. This is currently again the case in this talks in Jeddah. Mr. Schumann, the, the UN uh, chief, Antonio Guterres, has said himself that we failed to stop war from erupting in Sudan. So are you saying that the democratic movement essentially has failed because the international community has failed? There just hasn't been the support that was necessary? Well, you know, the word failure is a very simple one. I think you, you can track it down to different events. Yes, the international community was present in 2019. For example, Germany, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Heiko Maas, traveled to Khartoum. Uh, Abdallah Hamdok came to Berlin end of 2019. He was received by Angela Merkel. President Steinmeier traveled to Khartoum and was met you know, by everybody in, in the residence of the uh, German ambassador. 
Sudan, I was in Khartoum at the time. Sudanese friends told me, fantastic, they said, now we have the high-level attention, the high-level support. But then nothing happened. So it all fell into a deep black hole. This is what I mean. Once you start with an external intervention, you must see it through right to the bitter end with political support, with financial support, with other support. This was not done. So yes, the criticism from the street, in my analysis, is justified. And the drama is that we continue. We still uh, try to sort of legitimize U.S.-led talks in Jeddah without a clear mandate from the civil society organizations. Peter Schumann, expert on UN and UN missions in Sudan. Thank you so much for your analysis of this really very complicated situation. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. All right. So we are joined now by Yasmin Abdel Majid, who's a Sudanese-born writer and award-winning social advocate now based in London. Yasmin, thanks so much for being here with us on DW. Can I ask you, first of all, what you make of what you just heard there from Peter Schumann on the UN's and the international community's role in Sudan? In some ways, it's refreshing to hear the honesty, because I think people you know, on the streets in Sudan and activists in the diaspora and so on have been saying for some time now that the international community bears responsibility, did not listen to the people on the street, did not listen to the resistance committees who even you know, today are the ones on the ground find, finding ways to evacuate people, providing humanitarian assistance with very little um, international support. And so it is refreshing to hear folks in the international community say, okay, we bear responsibility, but in some ways it's frustrating as well. On one hand, it's too little too late, and on the other hand, things are not changing. Still today, you know, there is this the ceasefire talks in Jeddah, uh, we're talking about a temporary ceasefire for humanitarian aid. And this is not even what, you know, the civilians are not even at the table. We're still sort of having these regional high level conversations, not even high level enough to, to stop the fighting properly, but just sort of in this middling ground. So, so on one hand, it is positive to hear the international community talk about the responsibility they bear. But on the other hand, it's frustrating because it doesn't appear that things are actually changing in a positive direction. Can I ask you on a personal level, what is it like? What does it feel like to watch this crisis unfolding from afar? I mean, it's been heartbreaking. It's been utterly heartbreaking, especially because this didn't need to happen. You know, this is not a war that the Sudanese people have a dog in. It's not a fight the people have a dog in, right? Because ultimately it's a war between two generals about who gets to be, you know, the, the big dog in the presidential palace. The Sudanese people peacefully had a revolution in 2019 and their demands were very clear. We want a civilian government. We want a functioning state. The mother we heard earlier said we want a functioning safe society. And now we find ourselves only four years later in a situation where Khartoum is being bombed by its own military. People are fleeing. There are basic things like food and water. And I mean, it has genuinely been heartbreaking because it's not at all where I thought any of us thought we would be when we when we had this wonderful revolution in 2019 i mean it's 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 been utterly surreal can we talk about the international community's role again and the generals that you were just talking about did they put too much 
trust in the generals in the, during the transitional period? I think there is a sense from the international community that, you know, if you've got one or two people that you can have you know, a pragmatic quote unquote relationship with where, where there are a known quantity, then that is the easy short term solution to some sort of um, transition or some sort of functional governance that you as an international community can understand. But the reality is, as we know in many societies, democracy is a little bit messier. And what the international community should have done is dealt with the civilian sort of resistance committees, the grassroots people who actually represented individuals and, and the Sudanese population, rather than sort of say, okay, the people that have taken power, the military leaders, you know, those are the people we'll deal with. What are the people who actually fought for the revolution? What do they want? And how can we deal with them? I mean, even today, there's a civilian front, this letter, that a group of, of civilians, including the resistance committees, the unions, and so on, that represent the voice of the people who have said, here are one, two, three things that we want. But are they at the table with the international community? No. Can I just ask you very quickly, though, how can they circumvent the generals? I mean, they're the ones with the money and the power. Well, where does the money come from? Right. The international community also has a role in stopping the money getting to because these generals are not operating in a vacuum. They are operating in a society and a global system where the money is coming from somewhere, where the support is and the legitimacy is coming from somewhere. And if we can target those, the international community has the ability to target their resources and their legitimacy and essentially push them out of the picture, push them out of the center of the table and bring the people who represent Sudanese society into the center. Yasmin Abdel-Majid, Sudanese writer and activist, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Alexander Rondas is a former EU special representative for the Horn of Africa and he shared his take on the international community's role in the crisis in Sudan with me. I've heard a number of complaints about the role that the international community has played, meaning that it has not been perhaps as forceful as it could be. Uh, and there may be, we'll find out in time and in due course, whether there's this, this that has legitimacy. Uh, the reality is that today the Sudanese feel abandoned, but let's be clear, not just by an international community uh, which evacuated, but by its own leaders. Uh, what we have are two belligerents who've decided actually to sacrifice the interests of all the civilians of Sudan, who are the 90% of 99% of the country, uh, to pursue their own particular goals and ambitions, which tend to be more about power and money. So we should be very clear in that order of uh, priorities here. But never, said, nevertheless, hope, yes. Nevertheless, mm. don't you think if the uh, democracy movement in Sudan had received more support from the international community, this all wouldn't have happened. I would like to think that had one been far more energetic, quick, timely in the delivery of support back in 2019 onwards to the civilian government that had been installed under Prime Minister Hamdok, he and the civilians would have had the leverage and the oxygen, financial oxygen, with which to do the sort of politics that are needed to gradually consolidate civilian rule. And that's a, a, a process that would take time, but it would have need firmness and unity and, and speed in the way in which the international community acted. And I fear sometimes that wasn't synchronized sufficiently to have the desired political impact, and it left the door open for the, the armed groups 
to begin to the, the military and uh, the RSF of Hemeti mm. to, to begin to encroach again into the, into the, into power. That's very diplomatically spoken, but who uh, put the brakes on uh, uh, support for Sudan's democracy movement? No, you can't. I mean, it, it, it's, it's frankly too simplistic to ask who. Things happen, and they happen gradually because there are a lot of people who are involved in these, in the international community, who in turn is negotiating with all sorts of interests within Sudan. So there's no one, you can't point a finger at every, any one. You can, you can begin to look at what might have been the absence of a coalescence of absolute purpose. Now, let me put it to you another way. The fact that today, now, you have in Jeddah of Saudi Arabia, the very senior Americans and very senior Saudis addressing an issue of, of, of avoiding the, an absolute collapse of Sudan, I wish that had happened a lot earlier. So the question then is, why were the capitals not moved to bring to bear the highest levels in order to prevent the situation in which we're in? That is the question that needs to be pursued a bit further. But at the very least, at least something is happening now. And let's hope to God it went not too late. Now, uh, the two sides are actually talking in Jeddah, as we've heard. Uh, in your view, and please be, uh, briefly, if you can, are the two sides actually interested in peace? I think they know they've got no choice but to come to some agreement. The trouble is, will it be a temporary arrangement while they restock and catch their breath, or are they willing to be serious? That I don't know about. But I think they will want to show that they, they are ready to take even a, make a, arrange a temporary lull. Thank you very much, Alexander Rondas there, former EU Special Representative for the Horn of Africa, joining us from Nairobi. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Welcome back. And uh, that was a uh, discussion uh, that uh, was carried by the DW uh, News Agency uh, on uh, the current humanitarian and security situation uh, in uh, the Republic of Sudan, asking the question, is Western imperialism responsible for the crisis? Uh, opposition here at the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast, of course, is articulated uh, through the Pan-African Newswire and other news agencies. Uh, we see imperialism playing a substantial role uh, in the unfolding crisis uh, that is now racking the Republic of Sudan. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast. Today is Saturday, May 13th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
Southern uh, Soul Sounds from New Orleans uh, with Irma Thomas uh, with the track entitled Anyone Who Knows What Love Is. And we're here at the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. And uh, coming up uh, later this month on May 25th, it will represent the 60th anniversary of the formation of the Organization of African Unity uh, that was founded in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia on May 25th of 1963. Uh, Leading up to that period, uh, of course, there was much mobilization, organization, and struggle uh, over the question of national independence as well as African unity uh, during the 1950s and 1960s. Of course, uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah played a major role in that whole process. Ghana gained its independence in 1957, the following year. Uh, There were two major conferences which were held uh, in Accra, Ghana. The first conference of independent African states was held on April 15th of 1958, which was deemed Africa Freedom Day. And then later in December of 1958, uh, there was the All-African People's Conference, also held in Accra, uh, which brought together uh, some 62 uh, nationalist political parties and liberation movements. That same year, Dr. Nkrumah traveled to the United States, and during his uh, state visits uh, to the U.S., uh, he, of course, uh, met uh, with the then-President Dwight Eisenhower, and also uh, he appeared on Meet the Press, a uh, nationally uh, syndicated uh, news program, uh, which was uh, active then in 1958 and remains in practice. Uh, today in uh, 2023, some 65 years later. Let's listen to uh, this program uh, from uh, 1958 featuring uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah on uh, Meet the Press here in uh, the United States. Brings you Meet the Press, the prize-winning interview program produced by Lawrence E. Spivak. Four of America's top news reporters are ready for this unrehearsed news conference. Here's the moderator of Meet the Press, Lawrence Spivak. Welcome once again to Meet the Press. Our guest today is Dr. Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, the newest independent African state. Dr. Nkrumah has come to this country at the invitation of President Eisenhower. Dr. Nkrumah was born in Ghana, but received much of his adult education in the United States. For 10 years, he was at Lincoln University and the University of Pennsylvania, first as a student and then as a teacher. In 1947, he returned to the Gold Coast of Africa, where he rapidly assumed leadership in the fight for his country's independence. On March 6, 1957, Ghana became an independent nation a member of the British Commonwealth, and Dr. Nkrumah was chosen Ghana's first prime minister. 
The birth of Ghana as a nation has been called a personal triumph for Dr. Nkrumah and a symbol for other African states seeking freedom. Earlier this year, he initiated and was made chairman of the Conference of Independent African States. And now seated around the press table, ready to interview our guests, are Patrick O'Donovan of the London Observer, May Craig of the Portland, Maine Press Herald, Clifton Daniel of the New York Times, and Richard Clerman of Time Life. And now, Dr. Nkrumah, if you're ready, we'll start the questions with Mr. Clerman. Prime Minister, in your trip to the United States and Canada, you have repeatedly said that the foreign policy of your government is basically one of non-alignment and positive neutrality. I wonder if you could tell us exactly what you mean by that. Uh, when I refer to this position as that of non-alignment and positive neutralism, all what we mean is that uh, we have to watch out how we align ourselves with any particular group. But that does not mean uh, a sort of negative neutralism or rather the suspension of any judgment. If any position were to arise, I think we can take the view which we think is the right view to take. Well, we frequently have situations in the world now where the East and West, uh, in some cases, uh, the Russians and the Americans are on opposite sides of an issue. Uh, could you say, in terms of this foreign policy that you've just described, uh, where, in such a situation, your government would uh, place its uh, loyalties? Yes, where we think our interests lie. Well, let me be a little more specific. Yeah. We have a situation that is very much in the news now in Lebanon. Uh, where does your interest, interest lie in Lebanon? At the moment, I think that's why our non-alignment comes in. In the case of Lebanon, it's really non-alignment. We don't want to uh, get into the what is now happening there. And I think I've given out my own view on the matter. Mr. Daniel. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, uh, let's turn a moment from your foreign policy to ours in the United States. We've talked about the Lebanon. Uh, you may be uniquely equipped to give us some advice on this subject and others. You were educated in the United States. Your country belongs to the British Commonwealth. And uh, you are certainly one of the outstanding leaders of African nationalism. Perhaps you can give us some advice about our approach to these emerging new countries in Africa and Asia. Now, specifically, back to the Lebanon, would you uh, say that we were right, uh, from our point of view, to have sent our troops to the Lebanon? I would not be in a position to say whether you are right or wrong. But as I have pointed out elsewhere, there's no need to apportion blame anywhere. The only thing for it to try to find out a solution to the problem. Well, having, having sent our troops there, uh, what uh, solution would you now suggest? Should we withdraw them? Should we, should we remain with our troops for a I time? I would say that uh, you can withdraw them when, say, you have the United Nations forced to replace it. 
Well, let's turn then to another country in the area. Uh, what would you say uh, should be our attitude toward the new uh, revolutionary regime in Iraq? Should we recognize it? Uh, should we establish relations with it? Of course, I'm not very well acquainted with actual the real causes of that coup d'etat. And therefore, perhaps it would be difficult for me to give a judgment here. Well, let me ask you then about uh, 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 something I'm sure you do know something about, and that is what uh, do you think should be our attitude toward our relations with uh, President uh, Nasser of Egypt, a man whom I believe you know and uh, know very well? Well, I think uh, the relationship could be that of friendship. discussing this very question with him, he pointed out that at a time when he needed help, he didn't get it. You see, and in order to survive, he has to go somewhere else. And that's why you took that uh, step you took. Mrs. I don't think there is a really big enemy to between the United States and the United Arab Republic. Mrs. Craig. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, would you join the United Arab Republic? No, because uh, I belong to one of the African states. Yes. Well, you did call a conference of independent African states. Would you call that uh, forming a block? No, I won't call that forming a block. We were, uh, we were particular, very particular about this. We wanted to concentrate on the independent states on the African continent as such. So Egypt was on the African continent. That's why Egypt was invited as an independent country of the continent to attend this conference. You speak quite often of Libya, Tunisia, Morocco. Would you, would you like to form them, them into a block of which you would be the head? We were very particular at the conference not to use this word block. Because all what we are trying to achieve is some sort of a united outlook to solve our common problems. As I made it quite clear, we are not ganging up against anybody. Well, sir, what do you call that? If you don't call it a block, what name do you call it when you get together with the common aims and a kind of an alliance? Perhaps you might call it the African personality, which we think has now emerged. Well, don't you think That's it's That's mutual cooperation. Thing? Do you think it's the same thing when friends get together to defend each other? No, we didn't say we are going to get together to defend each other, either by military arms or anything like that. We want to get together so that we shall be able to discuss our common problems. There is your British Commonwealth, and I think there is also your an American Union. You are friendly with Israel. Would you, what would you do if your friend, uh, Mr. Nasser, were to go on with what he says he will do, which is to destroy Israel and push it into the sea? I don't think I've ever noted that from Nasser saying that was going to destroy Israel. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's never come to my notice. Yes, sir. I've heard him say it. Then it's going to be a job. That's all. 
Well, what would you do, said Idle, and let it be done, your friend Israel? Is it not let you it... Sit idle and let that be done, your friend Israel? But yes, I don't think that will be done. Mr. O'Donovan. Sir, if I could turn perhaps to the internal affairs of your country. Uh, I read quite a lot lately, particularly in the British press, uh, about some rather turbulent political affairs that are going on in Ghana. And I wondered if perhaps you sometimes thought that the British, in leaving, had saddled you with an unsuitable parliamentary system. I won't say that they have they left us and saddled us in a sort of a bad parliamentary system. But all depends upon the constitution that is left with you. But can you make it work? I mean, would you say, for instance, that uh, democracy as an institution is perfectly safe in Ghana today? I would definitely say that democracy in Ghana is perfectly safe. But sometimes, you know, you have to take some measures to really safeguard democracy in its initial stages. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, can you find any use for the more traditional modes of government in Africa? For instance, you have a, a quite a large system of chieftains in your country. Do you find those now getting in the way of the proper development of a modern Ghana? No. At the moment, uh, most of our chiefs are becoming to realize that the times are changing, and they must also change with the times. Would it be quite possible in the next election, I mean, would it be theoretically possible in the next election for you to be defeated and the opposition to take over in a quite orderly manner? It's possible. Mr. Prime Minister, is it true, as has been said, that although you've given Ghana considerable stability, uh, Ghana has lost some freedom under you? That charge has been made, as you know, in this country. We say that under me, I think Ghana has got more freedom. And any time I ask this question, I always say that I wish some of the press from here could go there and study our problems locally. Naturally, we were faced with some definite problems at the beginning, and we had to take some certain steps. Well, is it true at all that you tend to get rid of your opponents when you don't like their criticism, as also has been charged in Time Life, for example, in this country? That is not true. It isn't? No. Mr. Clarman. Mr. Prime Minister, uh, Mr. Spivak has been talking to you about civil liberties inside your country. Uh, do you have a, a law called a, prevent, uh, a uh, pre preventative detention law? And am I right in understanding that that is a law by which you may imprison a man up to five years for a threat to national security or a threat to foreign policy without any step-by-step -step judicial process? Yes, I think uh, I was responsible introducing that bill myself. Well, now, in Western terms, that would be considered a peculiar law for a democracy to have on its books. I wonder if you could explain that to us. You see, we've got to a point mm -hmm. that you have to adopt certain temporary measures. You see, we have an independent judiciary. We have uh, an independent civil service. Uh, when the British, you know, left, uh, they left, shall I put it this way, that they had 
the power by which, the real authority by which, with which they govern Ghana, they left, and then they did not put it anywhere else. And so everybody started feeling as if that anybody can do whatever he likes. And so we have to find out measures by adopting some temporary measures by which we can really put this thing to stop until everything goes well for us to be able to follow the right line. May I change the subject yeah. to a larger legislative question? Uh, are you in favor of the proposed summit meeting that is about to uh, apparently about to take place in New York? Yes, I'm all in favor for the summit conference because all these arguments here and there is only when they meet around the common round table, then they will actually know who is fooling each other. What do you hope will emerge from this conference? I mean, when they meet. Uh, after they meet, when they've met, and then what do you hope will emerge from their meeting? Well, if nothing emerges, at least they have met. And I think since I came, I've been happened all along certain proposals which I've put forward and which I hope the United Nations will take it very seriously. <clears throat> Mr. Daniel. Uh, Prime Minister, I'd like to return just one moment to the question of the internal affairs of Ghana uh, to ask about another development there. Your country is a member of the British Commonwealth. Uh, do you envision that the country shall remain so for a long time and pursue British institutions and British uh, methods? The reason I ask the question is because uh, since the, uh, Ghana has become independent, we've seen what seem to be some signs of a breakaway from the British tradition. I believe that, um, uh, for example, uh, you no longer have God Save the Queen as the national anthem. I think the Queen's uh, pictures have been taken off the stamps in the country and uh, replaced, I believe, in some cases with your own portrait. Uh, other evidences of a tendency to drift away from Britain, shall we say? And, uh, you see, we chose according to our own free will to remain within the Commonwealth. And I personally feel that it is our mutual interest for us to remain within the Commonwealth. You see, you have had British traditions, language, and education. It will be difficult to break suddenly. But I think there are points that the African has his own personal outlook, and that's why sometimes made a point that some sort of a Republican form of government will suit the African character. But I've gone so far as to make it quite clear that whatever form of Republican form we take, we will still continue to remain within the Commonwealth. Mrs. De Craig. Yeah, Mr. Prime Minister, your country is a very small country and probably could not defend itself militarily. I understand you put your trust in the United Nations. That's correct. Is that true? That's correct. But the United Nations has no force with which to defend you. That's why I'm advocating international force for the United Nations. You mean a police force for the United Nations? That's right. Would Ghana contribute to it? Sure, we shall contribute. You, oh, don't have, you have only three battalions, but I think we can put one battalion outside for the United Nations. Sir? I said you have only three battalions. But I think you can put one battalion aside for the United Nations. Yes. 
But we have never been able to get the United Nations to act in time, even if it had a permanent force. How do you think we're going to get a permanent force for the United Nations? Well, you have to talk about it in the United Nations when you meet. I lead you back again to what I asked you in the first place. Yes. How can you get along without alliances of friends to help you? That's why we must all find ways and means of standing the United Nations. You have lived in the United States and were educated here. Do you think the United States is imperialist? It all depends what you mean by imperialism. But as far as I know, I don't think the United States is imperialistic. Well, imperialistic. Yeah, I don't think so. You do not think so? No. Uh, do you regard the United States as the shield of the free world? That's the way we regard ourselves. We have helped everybody. I won't say I won't say the United States alone. United States and other nations fighting for freedom are the bulwark of that liberty. You want to stop nuclear testing? I have heard you say, but uh, how do you expect the free world to defend itself if it does not have the most modern of weapons, which require perhaps testing? But the stopping of the testing should not be done by the uh, the West alone. The other side also must stop testing its atomic test. Mr. Prime Minister, did I understand you to say that if the, there were a United Nations force, you would contribute troops to it? Yes. Would you prepare, be prepared to send troops into Lebanon and Jordan if United Nations force was set up? If the condition demands it, yes. Mr. O'Donovan. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, I understand you've had a, a magnificent welcome from um, enormous number of uh, uh, American Negroes while you've been here. And I wondered if you'd seen any sign of the sort of sympathy and loyalty and the desire to help among American Negroes which American Jews have for Israel. I think that sympathy is there. That even though uh, they look upon themselves as Americans, <coughs> I think they bond of blood and kinship make them feel that perhaps they can do something to help us. And I've put it over to them that something should be done. I think not only when we ask for investment, I think Negro investment also should go to Ghana. How much, Mr. Prime Minister, does the, uh, the attitude to the race question in parts of America, uh, how much effect does that have on the African mind? For instance, how well known is the name Little Rock in Africa? Well, I think Little Rock, only those of us probably who can read, who came to our notice, the majority of the people didn't know at all what was this Little Rock. But anyway, the racial problem is there, and I think at the Accra conference, all of us came out clearly that it doesn't matter whatever it is, you should find some way in which uh, racial segregation will never exist. And it was even suggested that in our own areas, in order to show a good example, that we should bring forth legislation to abolish it in our own uh, states. Mr. Kleinman. Mr. Prime Minister, it's been said of your economic philosophy that uh, you call yourself a Marxist socialist. Is that correct, sir? Yeah. Uh, would you tell us exactly uh, what you mean when you call yourself a Marxist socialist? 
when I call myself not just socialist, I'm really talking of philosophy. But I don't know how I should really explain it better here. A man must have an outlook, a philosophical outlook. Uh, I remember the question this matter with somebody in I think Washington, I don't want to mention names. We were talking about socialism and capitalism. He tried to explain to me that socialism in the long run will lead to dictatorship. I agreed. If you want to follow it logically. Capitalism also, I pointed out, if you want to follow it to its logical conclusion, you might also be heading to uh, dictatorship of money. So in the long run, we try to find out a way that whether it's most of this has become mere words. It depends upon a man's approach to this problem and what he actually does. You must find a medium. Well, I understand one of the points of your visit here is to encourage private American capital to invest in guns. Mm -hmm. Is that right, sir? Yeah. And do you think it is any deterrent to that kind of investment, uh, the economic philosophy which you just expressed? I have never found it incompatible with private investment. In fact, we have made it quite obvious. In Ghana, we are following three principles. Certain jobs in certain industries which can be done by private capital, those also that can be done with the cooperation of private capital, and those that can be done by government. We are following these three levels very, very seriously. Gentlemen, our time is running short. Make your questions short, too. Mr. Daniel. Uh, Prime Minister, I wanted to ask whether you could specifically tell us whether, uh, in connection with your development plans, you have obtained any promises of help since you've been in this country, particularly for the Volta River hydroelectric project. No, I wouldn't say any definite uh, help, but the atmosphere is so congenial that I hope something might come out of it. Mr. Craig. Mr. Prime Minister, you said in Washington that the Middle East oil resources ought to be brought under international control with possibly the United Nations handling. And what did you mean by that? I have always felt that the oil is the troublemaker in the Middle East. And I felt that the best thing is to, in order to stop all these troubles, is to quarantine the whole of the Middle East on the basis of, say, the neutrality of Austria. But I also know that the practical applications or the, how these things should be worked out can be done by experts. And that's why I've never commended the way and means in which it should be done. Mr. Prime Minister, the Genocide uh, Convention, which makes it an international crime, destroy a race has been ratified, I believe, by 58 members of the United Nations. I don't believe uh, your nation has yet ratified it. Is there any special reason for that? I don't know much about that. That is, the United, uh, that is uh, a, a United Nations resolution, and I understand that your nation is not ratified, but would you be for ratifying such a resolution which outlaws makes an international crime to destroy a race as Hitler tried to destroy the Jews, for example. But I think the thing condemns itself. I think anybody should be against a thing like that. 
Yes, and yet your nation has not ratified it yet. Because remember, we are only one year old. Now that some of these problems are coming before us. But you would be But personally, for it. I'll be for it. Mr. O'Donovan. Mr. Prime Minister, when you come to uh, work practically inside the United Nations, do you find yourself sympathizing most of the time with, say, the Indian delegation and working in with them in the Bandung powers? Of course, you see, we took part, uh, the African states took part with the Bandung conference. So naturally, in policy making on some real issues relating to Afro-Asian problems, I think we have to talk together. But what matters affecting Africa, I think, is for the eight independent states to have their own objective outlook on the matter. Well, the arrival of all these new Asian states has made an enormous difference, both to international affairs and the United Nations. Do you think that in a few years' time, with yourself and perhaps with Nigeria and others, Africa can also bring something new? That is our purpose. Mr. Clarman. Mr. Prime Minister, you've often been called, as you undoubtedly are, the leader of African nationalism. Do you think that the African nationalism that uh, you lead will coexist happily with Colonel Nasser's Arab nationalism, or will they come in conflict? I hope they did not come in conflict. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister. Daniel. There have, in fact, uh, already been differences between yourself and Colonel Nasser in basic policy, haven't there? For example, in your relations with Israel, which was mentioned earlier, and also um, on this uh, question of the Lebanon. You certainly don't quite agree with uh, Colonel Nasser on the Lebanon. Is there a conflict and a rivalry there? There, have no, uh, there is no conflict. I have made the position quite clear on Israel to Nasser. And I think he understood my position. You see, we follow these things only on principles, and that's what I've been dealing with him, even though he's a personal friend of mine. Sorry to interrupt you now, but I see our time is up, Mr. Prime Minister. Thank you very much for being with us. And now, here is our announcer. Goodbye for Prime Minister Kwame Nkrumah and meet the press. Welcome back. And uh, that was... Uh a interview uh, from 1958 with uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah uh, in the United States on the Meet the Press show. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, we're here on this Saturday, uh, May the 13th, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, we're going to take a uh, break, and uh, then uh, we'll come back with our concluding segment of our program.
Detroit's own um, rock band uh, called Black Murder, uh, doing uh, perhaps the first uh, cover of the Jimmy Hendrix Experience uh, hit record of 1967, uh, Foxy Lady, uh, covered uh, by the group that later became known as Black Murder from the city of Detroit. And uh, right now we want to move into our final segment, and uh, of course we're leading up to the 60th anniversary of the founding of the Organization of African Unity, the predecessor of the African Union, based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. We want to listen uh, to a rare archival audio file uh, from uh, the program Black Journal uh, from uh, 1968, uh, where they actually uh, took a field trip to Kenya, Tanzania, and also spoke with the uh, Mozambique Liberation Front. Let's listen to this archival presentation. Sisters, I'm Lou House with Bill Greaves. Hi, Bill. Hi, Lou. Welcome to Black Journal. Tonight we explore the political and economic development of two African countries in East Africa, ends and beginnings. Before we look to Africa, this is Harlem, home of 500,000 African Americans. The problems of black people are not limited to air pollution, campus unrest, nor unjust wars. For we are faced with a threat to our very survival. 
How about, uh, what do you think is the most pressing issue for black folks? You think, uh, what's the number one thing to you? The number one thing is the business of uh, narcotic addiction in this area, because it involves so many of our young people. Uh, I think it's probably a mistake to identify a number one problem. We have a number of prime problems, you know. Drugs is an important prime problem, because housing, employment, uh, education. Okay, we can't deal with one over and against the other. We have to deal with all of them more or less simultaneously. I think the major problem in Harlem is the white boy. He controls everything. And we as black people are going to have to control our own thing. We have to control our own destiny. We have to get rid of the drugs in the community. We have to talk about cooperative economics. We have to start dealing with each other. Well, A1, I would say the drugs at this point, you know, in the community, in this community, when the black people realize that that it just makes vegetables of them and it's, it's, it's another facet of, of what the man is doing and what he's putting out and it's, it's really the killing thing and they really realize what's going on besides the high and, and what they get and they realize that that's a killing thing. What do you think is the biggest problem in Harlem right now? You know that, the drug addiction. Why do you think it's the biggest problem? Because it's not safe to walk the streets anymore. Is that right? Is that bad? It's that bad. I believe drugs is the main deterrent of um, the black people. It really pulls at them. Why do you feel this way? Um, because uh, it makes you dependent on it, and uh, it makes you lose your sense of morals, your sense of um, decency, self-respect, and um, no nation, I don't care what nation, can really grow when something like that is pulling, you know. What do you think is the cause for this influx of drug use in the black uh, communities? I believe... One of the reasons is because of the great oppression which white races, you know, places on the black community, and this is one way of alleviating the pain. Harlem needs a concentrated program in order to clean up the drugs, and I don't mean spying on your neighbors. I mean as far as going to the white man who's bringing the drugs into Harlem. Aside from drugs, uh, do you see any uh, way that you can help personally to give black folks off to a better start, better life? I don't have any help. You haven't given up, have you? I certainly have. But if they, had, if they really had some conviction, or should I say we had some conviction about, you know, doing something, you know, don't get caught up in rhetoric and, and what I am going to do if and why and when the situation becomes ideal, which it ain't going to never become ideal unless you make it that. I think in, in, in terms of drugs, what we have to deal with is basically the mafia. Uh, that is, you know, you can take the pusher off, you can take him off the streets, but you have to deal with basically, you know, the international organizations of crime, which is supplying the cat with his stuff. You also have to deal with the societal conditions that, you know, make the brothers want to, you know, want to get high, uh, want to shoot up and what have you. Uh, pusher is just the middleman, in my opinion, and any program directed towards the middleman is ultimately going to be unsuccessful. How did it affect your family? My nephew, he died. He was killed on the count of dope. Are you are yourself involved in any way in uh, trying to get dope and drugs out of Harlem? Well, I don't see what I can do because uh, the police don't seem to care, so uh, I don't know what one individual could do. Only thing is to warn the children, keep warning them, white children. I think the black leaders should get together and get a program and decide where we're going to move 
And this means if you're militant, you're non-militant, if you're bourgeois, you all can together sit down at the table and take care of business instead of screaming at the NAACP or the Urban League or the Panthers. All the brothers got to get together if they want to save all the people. See, we as black people don't have a value system. Once we get a value system, then we understand that the drugs aren't too good for us. We understand who is putting the drugs in our community. And we understand that we have to get rid of the drugs because we have to understand who put it in our community. Do you think that we could move toward a program such as the Honorable Elijah Muhammad has in the Nation of Islam? Definitely, definitely. We have to do that. That's one of the best programs going. And we as black people are either going to have to follow example or get swallowed up. There are over 15,000 drug addicts in Harlem. Thousands of these are children, 17, 15, 12 years old, even younger. Since January in Harlem alone, over 150 of our brothers and sisters have died from drug-related causes. When we continue to let our children be destroyed by drugs, we are helping to destroy the future of our race. This is an appeal to every black man, woman, and child. Listen to your people. Stop the murder of our children. Our mother continent, Africa, is the oldest, the largest, and potentially the wealthiest in the world. This wealth, the rich, natural resources of Africa, is being exploited by the United States, France, Great Britain, and other so-called developed countries. The continued sanction and support by the United States and other Western powers of the criminal injustices that exist in Southern Africa are typical of the behavior of Western world towards all of Africa. The United States has heavy financial investments in Southern Africa as well as in other parts of the continent and is not about to surrender these profits. Mm -hmm. The fact that humanity, often the lives of black Africans, are at stake apparently means absolutely nothing. Even when African countries become independent, the Western world powers, under the guise of helping to develop Africa, take huge annual profits into their own countries. Along the east coast of Africa are the countries Black Journal will visit tonight, Kenya and Tanzania. These countries have reacted to and fared differently under this present-day exploitation, or neo-colonialism. In our examination of East Africa, we'll focus principally on Nairobi, capital of Kenya, and Dar es Salaam, capital of Tanzania. These cities are not intended to be representative of the countries as a whole, any more than New York City is representative, of, for example, of our rural South. But some insight into the attitudes and lifestyles of our East African brothers can be gained by focusing on the capital cities. In many respects, our report on East Africa may be considered a subjective one. Tony Batten, producer of this report, found that a black film crew visiting the mother continent for the first time does respond subjectively to the dance, music, art, and life of our brothers in Africa. We who are Africans from abroad realize that in reporting on Africa, we are in fact reporting on ourselves. East Africa, ends and beginnings. One thinks of Africa and thinks of what? Rhythms, black people in a jungle dancing, masked and perhaps scarred with body marks. These kinds of Western cliches about East Africa are ridiculous in light of what East Africa is about. Some of the old ways still exist in this part of Africa, and if Westerners could understand these ways, 
all of East Africa, Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania would not seem mysterious, savage, or very exotic. But these particular Western cliches are not innocent. They were and are designed to put the Western mind at rest and to keep a group of black people in economic bondage. Despite such cliches, such Western myths about East Africa, the African brother is getting it together. there are animals in Kenya, but the Nairobi National Game Preserve, Kenya's largest, surrounds the Nairobi airport, the busiest in all Africa. Ironically, as more jet charter flights arrive with increasing numbers of tourists, more and more animals depart, never to return to this part of East Africa. This has been one price the Kenya government has had to pay in order to change Kenya into a technologically developed nation. Before the process of development is completed, Kenya will have to give up more of what is beautiful and good about her country. And widespread problems, lack of proper education, disease, and growing unemployment have been far from eliminated. For the past six years, the man most responsible for government policy in Kenya is the country's first elected president, Mzee Jomo Kenyatta. Emerging from the Mau Mau Revolution of the 1950s, Kenyatta, mostly through the force of his own personality, has held the country together despite pressing tribal animosities and growing disparity between haves and have-nots. Here, celebrating Kenya's sixth year of independence, Kenyatta states his desire to maintain an economic system of free enterprise and a multiracial society. The retention of many former colonialists as advisors is a major problem in Kenya because of the heavy investment Prior to independence of the Europeans, or Muzungus as they are called in Swahili, total social development of the African is held back. The presence of blacks in power positions has disturbed whites who knew Kenya before independence. The colonialists had as their goal the complete exploitation of East Africa through what they called development. Based upon capitalism, this development set as its measure Western ideals of education and culture, society, and how one ought to go about getting things done. In Kenya, the measure of a man's success is often how closely he can imitate the lifestyles and accomplishments of his former political masters. This crack Kenya regiment strikes one as being more British as it drills than African. Its officers are trained in England and return to Kenya filled with the neat and swaggering caricature of the stereotyped British Sergeant Major. And throughout Kenya, there are other indications of how thoroughly the English presence has pervaded. 
Underneath the smile of the white advisor may hide the desperate understanding that his future may depend upon a roll of political dice. The African in Kenya is prone to reassess the value of the European from time to time. But many whites still find it worthwhile to stay on, remaining more and more in the background. These are the people in Swahili, the Wananchi. The Wananchi have questions of their own about development in Kenya. Enough questions to dump over a dozen members of the government in a recent general election. They are rural people mostly, but they are shifting to the cities in large numbers. While not representative of life in the countryside or in the smaller towns, Nairobi, the capital city of Kenya, has become the only metropolis that Africans, more than 40 tribes of them in Kenya, look to for their future. Morning in Nairobi is filled with the snarl of thousands of workers entering a city in which most cannot afford to live. And yet, it is this growing mass of black humanity on which the future of Africa depends. A combination of struggle and endurance shaped the African's nature, his soul, his happiness. Superimposed over everything in Nairobi is a desire for American and European modernity. There are minibus trips to see lions and music in hotels. In return for this modernity, the government provides investors with the privilege of transferring out of Kenya business profits after taxation through the Foreign Investments Protection Act. The struggle to bring Kenya from an agriculturalist state into a 20th century industrialist nation is thought out and worked at here in these buildings. Nairobi has been described, paradoxically, as a smallish British city, a gem of Africa. But now, it's developing into an enormous downtown glut. New buildings, mostly for government, rim the skyline. Others are not within a price range which would make many Africans feel comfortable. In addition to agriculture, tourism and trade earn great wealth for investors in Kenya. Tourism is largely controlled by whites. Trade is generally in the hands of Asians. Although many Asians, Indians, Pakistanis, and Goans hold Kenyan or British passports, their way of life in East Africa is ending under the pressures of Africanization. The process of Africanization is viewed by the African as getting a job or business formerly held by a non-African. In most cases, this means a slot in an economy controlled by Asians.
The only long-standing middle class in East Africa is made up of Asians. Now many blacks feel the Asian must go. Because he can read English and may be well-educated in Western ways, life in the village often no longer holds its former meaning for many East Africans. The average black man in Kenya, the Wananchi, continues to trek to the big city. In Nairobi, this black man must hunt, he must wait, he must pray for some work, work that mostly does not exist. Life outside the cities has changed also. An open market in Kikuyu country operates in the old ways, but city attitudes creep in. It's as if the people want a distance of privacy. The impact of independence is meaningful, but still carries problems. Here, with Kenyatta nearby, the Kikuyu feel secure. They earn a living from subsistence farming on shambas of a few acres. During the colonial period, this land was part of the white highlands. Now it has been returned to the people. Here a man can make enough to eat, but not much more. Nearby is Gatundu. Gatundu is the birthplace of Jomo Kenyatta. It is here that Kenyatta still lives, preferring the lush, soft landscape of the countryside to the constant hum of Nairobi. It is land such as this that gains Kenya much of its revenue from agriculture. This land can grow coffee, for example, one of Kenya's main export cash crops. It is grown on small cooperatives operated by blacks and large plantations, most still owned by Europeans. Coffee is controlled by the Kenya Planters Cooperative Union, or KPCU, and the International Coffee Board. The KPCU controls growing techniques and milling. The coffee board, governed by European and American interests, decides quotas and prices. Kenyatta's brother, J.J. Muigai, is liaison officer between KPCU and the International Coffee Board. We asked Mr. Muigai how the relationship to the International Board is maintained and how KPCU originated. Uh, this started back in 1937, but formerly there were two, there was another cooperative somewhere called Ruiru, and this amalgamated with another union, coffee union, and they formed this KPCU far back in 1937. To what extent do the African farmers participate in this cooperative? What is their function? The function is, you see, these um, cooperatives, they are just a cooperation of a number of people who plant coffee in a small area, say from an acre and up to 10 acres. And because it is very expensive to build a factory, uh, they formed cooperatives in order to process their coffee in one place and they sell it in, in, a, you know, in a group. After initial sorting, the coffee beans are popped from their shells and then stored in fermentation tanks. The beans remain here for 72 hours. They are periodically turned to keep the fermentation process even. After fermentation, the beans are washed to remove the gum that has developed during the process. 
The beans are dried and washed again. And then they are taken to racks for final sorting. More than 70,000 tons of coffee were produced and exported by Kenya in 1969, much of which was grown on cooperatives like these. On these cooperatives, a lot of the growing process is done by hand. The market for Kenya coffee is very good, and cooperative members like these Dunbari villagers derive a major portion of their livelihood from coffee. Under this cooperative arrangement, the farmers consolidate their crop and turn it over to the Kenya Planters Cooperative Union. When the coffee is sold at auction in Nairobi, the farmers get their money. But a coffee-berry disease and a ceiling imposed on Kenya's export quota, only 2% of the world's total, by the International Coffee Board, help to keep the net profits for the African cooperative farmer in Kenya pitifully low. This coffee milling plant is owned by the Kenya Planters Cooperative Union. The largest of its kind in the world, it is fully mechanized and in some areas operated by computer. The mill employs some 470 workers. With a total workforce of 250,000 in and around Nairobi, this mill provides only a fraction of the jobs required to support the population. We asked Mr. Moigai if profits for blacks would be increased were Kenya to sell its coffee unrestricted by the International Coffee Board. No. We found we can sell better in the, with the, in the, in the world more than looking market for ourselves. You see, we, as Kenya, we don't take that coffee to sell in the other countries. We sell our coffee in the auction here. And the coffee dealers, they take that coffee, you know, to, to the, to the, to, into the world, in the Germany, British, uh, Britain, America, Canada. But we are not interested to, to take that coffee ourselves into the world. You see what I mean? Are the Europeans who own coffee plantations taxed by the government uh, for their ownership of that land? There's no uh, land taxation. Uh, well, I'm not in a point of to uh, verify there. Uh, I'm a bit doubtful about this land taxation. But let me come to coffee. Uh, both societies or cooperatives and big plantations have to pay export tax to the government. When the coffee is sold here in the auction, uh, every ton exported at the moment, government uh, takes uh, 200 shillings, both from societies and the plantation. The plant is a maze of highly technical machinery that grades, roasts, husks, and prepares the coffee for shipment. This mill is seen as an example of industrial progress in Kenya, and in reality, it is but its very increased automation cuts back on jobs as well. But not all of Kenya's coffee is grown on cooperatives. Many European planters still retain large land holdings where coffee is produced. Coffee grown by Europeans is also milled at KPCU, but for the Europeans, the increased efficiency of the plant becomes a distinct advantage. Since their black plantation workers are lowly paid, 
the dollar margin of profits for the large landholders even more greatly increased. Except for a tax declared on incomes earned only in Kenya by these large landholders, little or no revenue is gained by the government from them. We asked J.J. Moigai, a key figure in the relationship between coffee sales and the African farmer, what the revenue earned by Kenya coffee sales is used for. Well, that's government running. It goes to the government revenue. You know, government is the head of state, and it uses all that money, you know, the different... And but it doesn't specifically go back to... To the coffee grower? Right. No. I it goes to the government treasury. No, one... Welcome back. That was a uh, historical report on uh, the East African state of Kenya uh, during the uh, immediate uh, post-colonial years uh, in East Africa. That's going to conclude our program uh, for today, and uh, we, of course, uh, will continue with uh, the Pan-African Journal. Uh, We're going to continue to focus on uh, the 60th anniversary of uh, the foundation of the Organization of African Unity. So, yes, uh, tune in uh, to our next program. And if you'd like to have access to this program, uh, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, and uh, that is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out with the music of uh, Duke Ellington and his orchestra with the, from the album entitled The Afro-Eurasian Eclipse. This is Abayome Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. Uh, this is really the Shinwazerie. Uh, last year, uh, we about this time, we premiered a new suite titled The Afro-Eurasian Eclipse. And, of course, the title was inspired by a statement made by Mr. Marshall McLuhan of the University of Toronto. Mr. McLuhan says that the whole world is going oriental and that no one will be able to retain his or her identity, not even the orientals. And, of course, we travel around the world a lot, and in the last five or six years, we, too, have noticed this thing to be true. So as a result, we have done a sort of a thing, a parallel or something, and we'd like to play a little piece of it for you. In this particular segment, ladies and gentlemen, we have adjusted our perspective to that of the kangaroo and the didgeridoo. Now, this automatically throws us either down, under, and or out back. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom? Uh, Harold Ashby has been inducted into the responsibility and the obligation of possibly scraping off a tiny bit of the charisma of his chinoiserie immediately after our piano player has completed his riki-tiki. <laughs> Thank you.